Welcome to the Director's Chair. My name is Michael Fullylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I speak with political leaders and policymakers about their lives, their careers and their views on the world. My guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the celebrated Canadian historian Margaret Macmillan. Professor Macmillan undertook her undergraduate studies at the University of Toronto before writing her doctorate at the University of Oxford. She's been a history professor at Ryerson University, the University of Toronto and the University of Oxford, where she served for a decade as the warden of St. Anthony's College. Margaret is one of my favourite non-fiction authors. She's written a number of brilliant books, including Peacemakers, Nixon in China, The Uses and Abuses of History and The War That Ended Peace. Thank you, Margaret Macmillan, for joining me from Toronto for the Director's Chair. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be at the Lowy Institute, even if it's virtual. Margaret, you come from a famous and distinguished family. Tell us a bit about your origins. I'm Canadian, and my father was Canadian, but my mother was British, Welsh, actually, as she preferred to think of it. And she came from a political family. Her grandfather was David Lloyd George, um, a leading liberal politician who was prime minister during and at the end of the First World War. And she came to Canada on a schoolgirls trip in 1939 in the summer and didn't get back for six years because of the war. And in the meantime, met my father, had me, um, had my sister. So she became, I think, quite Canadian, but we always kept ties with the UK. But in a way, I think I'm quite glad I grew up in Canada and that I wasn't called Lloyd George because there were no expectations of me. Might have been different in the UK. Margaret, 20 years ago, you published your breakthrough book, Peacemakers, which was a detailed look at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference with a particular focus on British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, and US President Woodrow Wilson. What was it like writing this story in which your great-grandfather, Lloyd George, plays such a pivotal role? Did you have an extra level of empathy for him when you were telling the story? I don't think I did have an extra level of empathy. I never knew him, of course. He died, I think, about a year after I was born. I knew my grandmother very well and my great aunt. And of course, they talked about their father, but they tended to be very partisan, as, as you would be. And I grew up and I became an historian. And I tried very hard to be objective. I didn't have any particular feelings one way or the other about Lloyd George. Um, if anything, I was probably rather critical because he was a very controversial figure. And when I first started to work on research for the Paris Peace Conference book. I was very much influenced at first by the research that said Lloyd George was devious, slippery, didn't have any principles. The, the portrait that John Maynard Keynes painted, for example. And I changed my mind, I like to think, because of the evidence. And I read the transcripts of the discussions, long discussions that took place over those six months in Paris. I read the correspondence. And my conclusion was that Lloyd George was actually a statesman who was doing as much as he could a fairly good job of things. And so if anything, I started out with a rather negative view and I became, I think, rather more impressed by him as a statesman. I've always tried to remember that I'm a historian. I mean, I'm not there to talk about family history. I'm there, I hope, to be an historian. Most historians these days write on small niche topics. Margaret, where did you find the ambition to write such a big book on such a large and important world event? I don't know where it came from. I'd done one book before, and that was on British women in India, which probably was a sort of niche subject. And I was teaching, and I was teaching a lot of different courses, and I kept on coming across the Paris Peace Conference. So many of the issues still in our world today were discussed there, and in many cases, what happened there 
has helped to shape our world. The settlements in the Middle East, for example, which really are still an issue in the world today. Um, the alienation of China, was it, which was partly a result of the Paris Peace Conference, borders in Europe. So I just became fascinated by the subject, and I thought someone should write a book on it. And I looked to see what had been written, and there were a lot of very specific studies, but there was no big book. And I quite like, I mean, I, I know you can't get everything right, but I quite like the big books that try and give an overview and a syn synthesis. And that's what I started to do. And it just, it was a subject that fascinated me. I just found it absolutely fascinating. All these leading figures, including, of course, Australia's prime minister, Billy Hughes, sitting there in Paris for six months talking to each other and trying to settle the world. And in some cases, making a mess of it, in some cases not. So it just seemed to me the most fascinating subject. The fact that no one had written a book that covered all the things I wanted to cover was an incentive. Did any academic specialists criticise you for taking on too much with that book? Some of the academics were very nice. I mean, I think there is a bit of a division in the academic world between those who think you shouldn't do anything but very small studies. And I think those studies can be extremely useful. And there are those who think that somehow, someone, somehow, you've got to bring it together. You've got to do the big picture. And I got some very nice comments from fellow academics. I did get some. I mean, I got someone who said, oh, well, all you're doing is telling stories, and it's just a lot of gossip. I think history is, is about the gossip and the stories as much as it is about the big issues. But on the whole, I think, um, people were fairly kind to me. The other thing I admire about your career, Margaret, is you're prepared to chance your arm and write on different topics in different periods. I'll ask you shortly, for example, about your book, Nixon in China. Most historians stick to their knitting. You don't. Why not? I don't really know. And sometimes I think, what have I done? Um, and I know there are people who know a lot more about certain subjects than me. But I do think there's a role for the people who, and I use other people's research. I depend enormously on the very good historians who have worked on very specific aspects of what I want to talk about. But I really think it's important to have the synthesis as well to bring together the story, to paint the big picture. We can always correct it, and people will. And, and there are bound to be things that I got wrong and the things I would write differently today. But I think there's a role for people like me, just as much as the role for the people who do the enormously important but often very detailed studies. So let me ask you about this book, Nixon in China. You wrote, Nixon did many immoral things in his life, but he longed to be good. So at the end, what did you conclude about Nixon? How did you understand his, his great successes and his visions along with his awful behaviour? I became fascinated by Nixon. I grew up in the 60s. And, you know, like a lot of students at the time, I was very opposed to the Americans in Vietnam and I was very demonstrating about American civil rights. I mean, we were very critical in Canada, a lot of us students, about the United States. And when Nixon came into office, I thought he was awful. I thought he was a warmonger. I thought he was Tricky Dick. That was one of his many nicknames. I saw him really as a sort of cardboard figure. And what I found when I did my book was that I had to modify my picture. He was much more complicated in some ways much more human than this rather cardboard figure I had of, of this deeply um, wicked man. And of course, we all remembered Watergate when, when he tried to cover up the break-in of the democratic offices. And he was not always a great man. And I mean, he did many wicked things, but he was an interesting man. And he cared deeply about the position of the United States in the world. He was a liberal internationalist. I hadn't realized this when I learned it. He, he supported the League of Nations. He supported the UN. He believed the United States could be a force for good in the world. These are not things you associate with Richard Nixon, but he was in some ways really much more liberal than, than, than the Republicans of today. And he actually did do things for things like mental health, drug addiction. You know, so the man is, is complicated. 
And I think he was fascinated by foreign affairs. I think he took foreign affairs very seriously. And I think in many ways, he, he was a considerable statesman. So what I ended up thinking was, I guess, like a lot of us, he was much more complicated than I thought and, and had a mix of good and bad. And your book was a case study of this um, diplomatic initiative where Nixon and Kissinger and his administration reached out to China and therefore created a wedge between China and Russia and liberated some elements of US foreign policy. If Richard Nixon were president now, Margaret, what kind of China policy would he be running, do you think? I think he would be attempting to contain China because he was someone who'd been very much involved in the containment policy which the United States had towards the Soviet bloc in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, he believed in being strong. He believed in working with allies. He believed in containing the enemy and and making, or the potential enemy, making that country or group of countries recognize that they would pay a penalty if, if they pushed too far. So, I mean, I think judging by that, I would suspect that Nixon would be trying to build coalitions to work with countries that have concerns about the way in which China is using its power. Not, I think, to provoke a conflict with China. And Nixon was very conscious of the power of China and said, in fact, in an article before he became president, uh, the article was written sometime in the late 1960s, he said, we cannot leave China in angry isolation. I mean, he recognized that China was a very important regional power, um, potential to be even a greater power. And I think he recognized that the world must engage with it. And that meant the United States, of course. And so I think today he would be saying, we have to show China that we can be firm, that we can build coalitions that will prevent it from throwing its weight around too much. But we've also got to continue to engage with China and bring China into the family of nations. Some of the debate about China now mirrors historical debates about how the world should deal with rising powers. Do you think in general, is it better to bulk up for the international community to bulk up or coalitions to form to deter reckless behavior? Or in doing so, do you raise the risk of creating or escalating the conflict that you're actually trying to avoid? There are always risks, aren't there? I mean, if you don't bulk up, then you get into a position where the rising power may feel that it can bulk up even more and, and throw its weight around. I think what is terribly important, and I think perhaps we've lost sight of, is just how important diplomacy is and how important it is to try and find common ground with countries, even countries that you don't share all that much with, where you can actually work together. And there are certain things which the United States and its allies during the Cold War did have in common with the Soviet Union and its allies during the Cold War. And one of those was not having an all-out nuclear war, you know, not having that sort of war which would destroy both sides. And I think today, the common ground that China and the rest of the world have is climate change. They have got to work together. There are issues on which they've got to work together. And I think always important to try and find perhaps not, not you won't agree on everything. I mean, I think the idea that you're all going to be best friends and, and agree on everything is, is, is wrong and uh, idealistic. But I think what is important is to try and find the areas where you can work. And it takes time. And that's where I think diplomacy is very important. I think you have to have in countries, for example, dealing with China, people who know about China, know its history, know its 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 demography, know its sociology, um, ideally can speak Mandarin, because these are things that you need to manage with care. And incoherent policies or policies veer between one thing and another are not the way to deal with powers, particularly, I think, rising powers, which may feel insecure. You know, we look at China and we see a very powerful country, but the Chinese have come, we have to remember what they've come through. You know, the people in charge now have come through periods of tremendous upheaval, periods of of 
near anarchy. I mean, Xi Jinping himself was sent out to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution and his own family suffered a lot. And I think we have to remember that's very much in the memory, particularly of the Chinese leadership. And so this strong, modern, developing country, which is had making such extraordinary progress, has these much darker memories and I think has a real fear of the chaos of some of the periods in its past, in the anarchies of its past. And I think sometimes it will not behave tactfully and will not behave well. And I think we see this in some of the Chinese diplomacy, which seems to me often inept and actually provokes a response which the Chinese presumably don't want. And so I think we have to accept that China is not always going to behave in ways that we would like. And of course, the Chinese will say exactly the same thing about us. But the relationship is so important for the future of the world that I think it simply is something we have to work on. But I believe in working at different levels. So, yes, I think being strong militarily, showing that you have a strong coalition of, of powers that will not easily be separated one from the other and will not easily um, accept Chinese provocations or Chinese thrusts into different geographical areas, I think is important. But continuing to engage with China, trying to understand it, I think is equally important. Margaret, in 2008, you published a book called Uses and Abuses of History. It's a truism in politics. People are often saying we should learn the lessons of history. But what did you conclude were the advantages, but also the disadvantages of trying to apply historical lessons to contemporary events? The advantages are, I think, that it can help you to understand. And so, as I was saying, if we don't understand what China has been through and what the Chinese leadership are remembering, then we miss a very important component of what makes China behave the way it does. I mean, you could say the same thing about any country. To understand Australia, you need to know something of its history to properly understand it. To understand my own country, Canada, I think the same thing is true. And so history, I think, can lead to understanding. What history can also do is help us ask useful questions. I don't think history teaches neat lessons. History doesn't say this situation is exactly like the situation in 1921, and we must do the following if we want to avoid what happened in 1921. History doesn't offer those sorts of lessons. What history will say is, what should we be looking for here? Where might we get into trouble? And that's where what happened in the past can be helpful. Where it's dangerous, I think, well, two ways I think history can be dangerous. One is when it's used to mobilize or to mobilize peoples against other peoples. We all know what false histories can do to create animosity between peoples or where history can be used to defend the indefensible. But I think where history is also dangerous is if you get or people making decisions get caught in very tight analogies. You know, we've seen what the appeasement analogy has done over the past, you know, the, the, those in the 1930s and the democracies who tried to understand and appease the demands of the dictatorships, Italy, Nazi Germany, and, and militaristic Japan, have been accused of giving way too easily to those dictators. It doesn't mean that every situation where you have to sometimes give way means you are appeasing, you know, that sometimes you have to know when to give way, you have to know to accept something. And I think the appeasement analogy, I think, got the Americans into trouble, for example, in Vietnam. You know, the argument was made, if we don't stop the communists in Vietnam, they'll grow in strength, they'll take over. You know, the, the famous one was, we'll be fighting them in San Francisco if we're not fighting them you know, in Vietnam. And that's when I think an analogy can become a trap. You know, there are many analogies from the past. And you shouldn't be trapped by just one. You should look for others. It, if, if, if history does anything, it should open your mind, not close it down. 
That particular analogy was also used by George W. Bush in relation to Saddam Hussein and the Iraq War, of course. Why do you think the appeasement analogy has such sort of striking purchase on the public consciousness of the world, especially in the Anglosphere? It seems that it is the analogy that leaders so often go back to when in fact there's, there are millennia of histories and lessons we could take from, from different periods in history? It's an interesting question, and I, have, I haven't thought enough about why our leaders so often like it. I wonder if it has something to do with the Second World War, that the Second World War broke out and was seen as a failure of appeasement, yet the Allies won it. And for a lot of the countries that fought on the Allied side in the Second World War, it was a good war. It was the right war. It was a just war. Now, it gets more complicated than that, of course, because in fighting in, in the Second World War, we were allied to one of the world's greatest tyrannies in the shape of the Soviet Union. But I think the experience of the Second World War, in which the Allied countries won, and of course the key one was the United States because it became the superpower, was seen as a repudiation of, of appeasement, was seen as the right answer to appeasement. You know, they should have got tougher before and they got tougher just in the nick of time. And I suspect that may be part of the reason it has such a hold on our imaginations. And perhaps it's an easy one for us to understand. You know, if you're a kid playing in the schoolyard, you're told to stand up to a bully because otherwise they'll keep bullying you. You know, it, it, it has a seductive simplicity. Margaret, in 2015, you delivered the Massey Lectures with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And in 2018, you gave the Wreath Lectures with the British Broadcasting Corporation. If you could only give the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Boyer Lectures, you could complete the trifecta. One of the questions that you asked in your Massey Lectures was, what makes good leaders? What did you conclude? I think it depends, of course, what they have to work with and what sort of society they're in. But I think what makes a good leader are those who maintain the ability to take criticism, to hear alternative points of view, and to appoint good people around them. There's a real danger in being a strong leader in that you more and more surround yourself by people who tell you what you want to hear. And of course, people like to tell the leader what they want to hear. They'll always be the courtiers around. And that may narrow the options and the thinking of the leader. And I think strong leaders, if they again, if they stay in office too long, don't want competition or often don't want competition, which means they don't always have good people. And so I think what a really good leader does is try and build coalitions, listen to advice, allow opposition, allow disagreement. Um, you know, that's the way you learn. Now, one of the assumptions in the argument you've just made is that individuals make a difference in history. There's a long-running debate, I guess, um, between those people who believe that history is made by individual men and women and those who think it's driven by vast impersonal forces. And often it seems to me that academics emphasise the impersonal forces while politicians and policymakers emphasise the role that the individual plays. Perhaps you're an exception to this, but let me ask you, where do you think the balance lies between, I mean, obviously both individuals and the context in which they operate, they both matter. But where do you sit on that spectrum of that debate? I think I sit right in the middle. Um, you know, I think it is a combination. I mean, it, let's take Napoleon. Um, if Napoleon was born on Corsica, before the French Revolution, he came from a minor family with some claims to nobility, he wouldn't have got anywhere. He just about got into the local cadets college because they managed to find enough noble ancestors, but he didn't have the pull. He didn't have the connections in the old monarchical French regime. He wouldn't have got very far. Highly unlikely. The revolution made it possible. And he became head of a very powerful country. If he'd become ruler of Corsica, he could have probably caused a bit of trouble to Sardinia, done a bit of piracy, but he couldn't have disrupted the whole of Europe. Same thing with Hitler. You know, if Hitler was head of some little tiny country, if he's head of Liechtenstein, 
he would have caused misery for the people of Liechtenstein, possibly, and their neighbours, but he couldn't have disrupted the whole of Europe. So I think it's it's what these people get control of. And, of course, their, their times matter, the forces they have at their disposal, the forces that underlie their success. But I still think the individual can make a great deal of difference. I mean, you know, if Hitler had been killed in the trenches in the First World War and he came close to being killed, would anyone else among the German nationalists have been as determined to fight to the bitter end, fighting until Germany was destroyed? I suspect not. I suspect even people like Goering and Goebbels might have been prepared to make peace with the Allies before the bitter end. Hitler was not. And I think the same thing is true of Stalin. You know, a number of the Bolsheviks would have tried to push through collective farming. A number of the Bolsheviks would have been pretty ruthless with what they perceived as their enemies. Would any have pushed it as far as Stalin? And so I think, yes, I think sometimes that the individual really does matter depending on what they're in control of and what they can do. Your 2018 BBC Wreath Lectures looked at the nature of war and you argued in your Wreath Lectures that we need to think more about war if we want to avoid it. Tell us about the argument you made in the Wreath Lectures. Do you think we've become too complacent about the possibility of war? It concerns me. I mean, I'm part of this world I mean, that has enjoyed the long peace since 1945. You know, I'm part of this enormously privileged generation in countries such as Canada and Australia where war has been something that happened in the past or happens very far away. You know, we have not had war come close to us and very few, comparatively few of us have actually been engaged in war out of the total population. And I think there is a sort of complacency that war is something we don't do anymore and that others do, others who aren't like us who live in different parts of the world. And that reminds me too much of the complacency before 1914 in Europe, where a lot of Europeans thought war is just impossible now. We don't do it. We're too civilized, as they used to say in those days, we're too advanced. We've made so much progress. War is something that won't happen to us. And it did happen to them. And so I think we do need to think about war. I think we need to think of ways of preventing it. I think we need to think of ways of building coalitions against it. But I think we do need to think about it because it's always going to be somewhere in the world, at least as far as I can see. And at the moment, as we know, there are wars raging. There's been a war pretty much every year somewhere in the world since 1945. And so war is still very much part of our world, even if we don't feel it. But one of the reasons that war hasn't touched countries like yours and mine and the Western world is the presence of nuclear weapons, which deters war. Would you agree with that? How do you, what do you think about the effect of nuclear weapons, the contribution they've made to, to the long peace? I've actually been changing my mind about them because during the Cold War, I think a lot of us assumed and you know, I lived through the Cold War. My first memories, really, I think, as a child, were of the Korean War. So I, I was, you know, it was very much a feature in my life, or central fact in my life for most of my life. I think I assumed, along with a lot of people, that nuclear weapons were actually a good thing. That they were this extraordinary weapon which is, was designed not to be used and was never going to be used, but kept to balance um, the, what, that wonderful phrase, mutually assured destruction, between the Soviet Union and the United States, which meant that neither would attack the other because whatever happened, they would also be destroyed in the nuclear exchange. What I've come to think since the end of the Cold War and as some of the top secret information about what actually happened during the Cold War has come out is that we had some pretty narrow escapes and that there were too many people on both sides who thought they could fight a nuclear war, that it was an option and that they could use nuclear weapons. And that frightens me. I mean, we came so close in the Cuban Missile Crisis, in K the shooting down of KAL-007 in 1983, we came so close to something going wrong. And there were all these other occasions, you know, when a technician somewhere in 
North Dakota saw something on the radar which looked like an incoming Soviet attack and was a flight of geese, you know, and, and the Soviet technicians who thought that they had got a message that something was happening and came very close to launching or just the sheer mistakes. And so I think they're very dangerous weapons to have around. Um, someone sooner or later is going to want to use them. And of course, we've seen a proliferation of nuclear weapons beyond those countries which originally possessed them. And that is also, I think, frightening. The more weapons there are around them, I think the more danger there is. I would prefer to see the world get rid of them, but I don't hold out many hopes of that happening anytime soon. Margaret, for the last few years, you've split your time between the UK and Canada. Of course, Canada recently held its third election in six years and a Prime Minister Trudeau is expected to form another minority government. What did you think about the election, about the result, and how do you rate Justin Trudeau as a leader? Well, on the first part of your question, I think a lot of us are quite grumpy. I mean, the common mood seems to be we didn't need an election. We had it in the summer, which most people don't like, or the campaign was in the summer. And we spent $600 million plus, and we've ended up pretty much where we were before the election was called. I mean, the balance in Parliament is pretty much the same as it was with, with a slight difference here and there in one or two seats. And so there's a mood, I think, of why did we do this? And I'm sensing a mood that maybe Justin Trudeau has been in office too long. Um, you know, there is talk now that maybe he should, you know, find a time when he can gracefully exit. Um, he's seen as someone who has been very good in some ways and, and not so good in others. And I think, I don't know if opinions turning against him in the Liberal Party. I'm hearing from Liberal friends that there is now talk of a leadership change at some point. But it will be up partly to Trudeau to decide when he wants to go, if he wants to go. And how do you think historians will rate the Justin Trudeau premiership compared to that of his father, Pierre, for example? Hard to tell. I think Pierre Trudeau will be seen as a more formidable figure, um, a more intellectual figure, a tougher figure. Um, Justin Trudeau, I think, is perceived, and it may not be fair, but he's perceived as someone who is very focused on identity, on apology, on um, making gestures. And I think there's a feeling is, is what is he doing that's concrete? Um, and there are issues, as you know, that we're, we're facing. I mean, we still, we're still facing COVID issues. Um, we're still facing issues in, in our federalism. And I think there is a sense that he hasn't shown much leadership on some of these issues. May not be fair. Um, I'm simply saying what I, what I sense while I'm here. You spent a lot of the past decade living in the UK What's happened to Britain in the past decade, Margaret? As an outsider, I've always admired British politics, the British civil service, the ability of the British system to get the mail through. But it feels like something has changed. First, Britain had this long, drawn-out, divisive debate on Europe, which led to it exiting the European Union, which I don't think was consistent with its interests. And then its initial response to COVID was so unimpressive. It improved on the vaccination front, but still that first year was just awful for the UK. What's happened to Britain in the past decade? Yeah, I don't know what happened. I mean, I lived there for quite a lot of the time. Um, I think a number of things happened. I think the sort of people who were in government, the press, the sort of people, who, interlocking elites, really tended to overlook how, how the unhappiness in certain parts of Britain I mean, there, there are real divisions in British society. There are parts of the country that are very prosperous. If you come to the south, you go to London, there's a lot of prosperity, a lot of new industry, somewhere like Oxford or Cambridge, you know, lots of things happening there. But not so much in the north, not so much in parts of Wales, not so much in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think there was a feeling that a lot of people were feeling that 
people in London didn't care about them, that these elites were sort of looking after themselves. They were, you know, happily engaged in trading or involved with the European Union and the rest of the world. And I think there was a division. And I think those in power didn't recognize enough. I mean, the Labour Party, as much as the Conservative Party, failed to recognize how people in the sort of depressed areas of England, often members of the working classes, would be really resenting what was happening and seeing no opportunities for themselves or their children. And I think what was also happening is some of this unhappiness was regrettably, I think, and it was stirred up by politicians becoming focused on immigrants. Immigrants were being blamed for a lot of things. Um, you know, and there was a lot of scare rhetoric, you know, that the millions of Turks said the Leave campaign waiting to come to the UK, which is a complete lie. But I think the concerns that many people felt about what was happening to British society and the British economy and then their own chances in that society came to be focused, I think, unfairly in many cases on, on the immigrants who were arriving in the British Isles. And I think what the Tory party did was move more and more to the right. I mean, it always had this hardcore um, of people who loathed Europe, who harkened back to the glory days of the British Empire or you know, Britain as the key power, the pivotal power between the United States and Europe, whatever. I mean, the various dreams that were, that were being thrown around. And I think they pulled the Tory party to the right. I think a lot of the Tory leadership were afraid to alienate them, afraid to deal with them. I think David Cameron called his election, hoping that this would, well, called his election and then agreed to the referendum, hoping that this would put to bed once and for all the idea that the British wanted to leave the European Union. I think he was hoping that it would destroy his own hardcore right wing in, 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 in the, on the Brexit side of things. And of course he made a terrible miscalculation and in the campaign, um, the referendum campaign, I was there for it. It was, it really shows, I think, how important how you run a campaign can be. Um, the Brexit campaign was, was quite simply very good. Um, they had a very simple slogan, take back control. And then the, when there was the second referendum on, you know, when, when, when it was the, the second election when Boris Johnson was elected, they had this brilliant slogan of get Brexit done. You know, very simple slogans that people could identify with, very short on detail. And the Leave campaign was, was quite frankly, boring, um, too detailed. It said, you know, well, if we leave, everyone else will be five pounds a week worse off. They, they didn't appeal to the nostalgia. They didn't ha have brilliant slogans. And there was this whole nostalgia about, you know, we were once a great power. And there was a lot of referring back to 1940, we fought alone. Well, I, you know, I don't need to tell you as someone in a Commonwealth country and as a Canadian, this is infuriating. Britain did not fight alone in 1940. It had the whole Commonwealth with it. Um, Australians, Canadians, Indians, South Africans, you know, people from all over the world. But that was the nostalgic side of it. You know, we were once alone. We don't need anyone else. And I think it's my, my own view is it's a great shame. It's left Britain as divided as it was. Um, it's broken up friendships. I know people who, who no longer speak to people who they disagree with. Um, it's a bit like Trump in the United States. I mean, these, these are things that divide people. And I think it's left the country, I think, worse off. But, you know, time will tell. But already there are economic consequences from it. Um, already they're beginning to, these are beginning to become apparent. Um, so we'll just have to see. Going back to the, the issue of the role of individuals in history, is there an argument that absent Boris Johnson, Britain would not have left the European Union, given how tight the campaign was, how an effective a campaigner he was? Well, there is an argument for that, and he is a brilliant campaigner. Um, and he somehow gets away 
with being a very complicated and often flawed human being and people forgive him. No other politician, I think, would get away with it. I mean, you know, Michael Gove um, and his wife have split up. I mean, this this has cost him, you know, the, the, the um, I'm trying to, Matt Hancock, who was seen kissing his assistant in his office, had to leave office. Boris Johnson gets away with it. People sort of smile and say, good old Boris, he's, he, you know, that's the sort of person he is. And he is a brilliant campaigner. Um, I think he's bored with the business of governing. He doesn't pay any attention to it as far as I can see, but he loves campaigning and he gets out, he talks to people, even the old sort of sedate Tories in, in the shires, in the, you know, in the countryside in Britain, who would be horrified at anyone else like this, sort of smile and say, good old Boris, he's a bit of a boy. You know, it's, it, I do think in this case, he did make a difference. And as you know, he wrote two different articles for the Daily Telegraph, which he writes columns for um, on, the eve, on the evening of the referendum, one saying we should stay in and one saying we should get out. Um, you know, I, I don't think his mind was made up, but I think he enjoys the drama of politics. He enjoys being in the driving seat. Um, he is, he's a phenomenon. What about Joe Biden, Margaret? You know, six months in or so, what are you making of his presidency? I think from my point of view, he's sending many of the right signals. Look, I'm a Canadian and whenever they do surveys here, I think something like 90% of us would vote Democrat. Um, you know, we, we tend in Canada to be much closer to the Democrats in, in policy, and I think we prefer Democratic presidents. Um, I think Biden has attempted to create consensus within the United States. It's proving difficult, but he's attempting also to deal with some of the major and pressing problems in the United States from um, dealing with the, the fallout from COVID and vaccinations, but also dealing with infrastructure, with dealing with some of the deep divisions in American society. I mean, he's, his message is one of hope, I think. And let's get something done. And I think that appeals to a lot of Americans. In foreign policy, he's made it very clear that he sees containing China as important. But I'm not sure what signals he's sending about alliances. Um, you know, he, he doesn't seem really to care all that much about Europe. Um, and that, I think, could be a problem in the long run. Um, his way of getting out of Afghanistan, there was no good way of getting out of, out of Afghanistan, I suspect, but the way in which he appeared to do it without much consultation with the allies who were there, I think, may have hurt him. And I think we have to remember that he is still in charge of a deeply divided United States, more divided than I think I've seen at any time in my lifetime. And so he faces enormous domestic problems. Um, and how these play out in his capacity to deal internationally, I don't know. And like a lot of Americans, he will be tempted where possible to withdraw from engagement in the world. Um, I think he recognizes the United States can't withdraw completely. But there is, I think, as you know, a strong isolationist strand in American thinking about the world. And I think Biden would prefer, if he could, to focus on domestic problems. He will deal with international problems when he has to. But I think he's primarily a domestic issues president. On the other hand, Margaret, he has convened a number of new sort of diplomatic groupings that are quite interesting. As you know, we had the AUKUS announcement, which is a pact between Britain, the United States and Australia for closer military and scientific ties and the development of a nuclear-powered Australian submarine fleet. We've had two meetings of the Quad leaders now, the United States, Japan, India and Australia. Do you think these sorts of groupings, which of course are in response to the rise of China, do you think the interests of these countries are sufficiently congruent with each other that, that they can go the distance and they can have a meaningful impact on international life? Well, I think in the case of the Quad, they all have an interest in not seeing 
an increasingly assertive China push anymore. I mean, India has long had a very tricky relationship with China. And as you know, there, was, there, were, there were these clashes up on the common border in the high mountains between India and China last year. Japan, I think, is deeply concerned about what China is doing in the seas around its waters. And I was talking to a Japanese journalist the other day, and, and I said, how likely is it that people in, in Japan will start to say, perhaps we should acquire nuclear weapons, which of course the Japanese could do very easily given the advanced technology. And he said, it's a conversation that's beginning to happen, which I find very interesting indeed. Um, it may go nowhere, but it seems to me the very fact in a country which is actually the only country in the world to have had nuclear bombs dropped on it, that this is even something that can be considered, I think is very interesting. And I think the AUKUS, am I pronouncing it correctly? It's such a new grouping that I'm still trying to think how to do it, um, is an interesting one. But if it's scientific and military technology, then I do wonder why other countries, um, Canada, for example, was not included and one of the unfortunate things, of course, has been the cancellation of the contracts with the French submarines in the way it was done. Um, you know, it, it was a real slap in the face. And I think what both the Quad and any other new groupings that are going to emerge, um, if, if the AUKUS may get bigger, will, I think, get stronger if they are managed well. I mean, alliances are promises. People promise to get together, but it takes a lot of management. And they have to continue to work with each other. They have to build trust. I mean, these things don't happen just because you happen to sign a bit of paper or make a statement. They only really have substance. And I think NATO showed that. NATO became a very effective force because its military worked together and its diplomats worked together over time. And they came to integrate the ways in which they, they work together. They came to integrate their forces and they came to trust each other. And so I think a lot will depend now on how these developments go forward and how these new groupings are actually fleshed out and how, they, how they're built. We've been talking a lot today actually about the Anglospheric countries and you've made most of your life, I guess you've lived most of your life in the Anglosphere as have I. What explains the, the persistence of the Anglosphere? We have certainly in the Five Eyes intelligence grouping, you have the most powerful and influential intelligence alliance, if you like, in the history of the world. And we see in AUKUS the, the muscle memory of the Anglosphere kicking in. What are the strengths of the Anglosphere, but also what are the risks for countries like Canada and Britain and Australia in the Anglosphere that we miss things that are happening in the rest of the world, that by investing too much in old relationships, we miss out on new relationships? Well, the first part of your question, I think, to me, shows the power of shared experience and shared cultures. You know, we are different but we do share a lot. I mean, when I come to Australia, I feel I'm visiting a country which is a cousin to my countries. Even the buildings, you know, if I go to the University of Sydney, the buildings at the University of Sydney look very like the buildings at the University of Toronto. And our constitutional development has followed a very similar path. We came of age within the British Empire and we gradually acquired the right to rule ourselves. And so I think that's important. I think a shared language is important. Um, cultural values, these, these things matter. Um, we, have a, we have a way of understanding each other, which is easier perhaps than, than countries where, we, where people speak different languages and have had dis different historical experiences. We start in a sense ahead. Um, I think the Anglosphere also shares certain liberal democratic values, which I think again, make it fit together perhaps. I don't think it should become a, an object of sentimental um, reminiscing and I don't think it should be something that's seen as a substitute for other kinds of, of groupings and openings to other kinds of societies. 
In Britain, during the whole period of the discussion over Brexit, there was a great deal of talk, particularly among the Brexiteers, about how the Anglosphere would be reconstituted um, with Britain as the leader, which I kept on pointing out was highly unlikely. But um, anyway, this, this, this was something, I think, which was a fantasy. But I do think there's something there. Um, there are ways, I think, that Canadians will think about Australia. You know, if we heard that something's happened to Australia, we would worry about you because we are, as I say, products of the same family in a way. I feel much the same, actually, if I go to somewhere like India or Jamaica. Again, there are shared experiences, again, from the architecture to the types of governments we have to the types of education we have. And I agree, however, with, with what you suggest, is that it can be too limiting to focus just on the Anglosphere. Just because we speak the same language doesn't mean we're all the same. We have had similar histories, but also very different ones. And I think increasingly important in a very globalized world is to be able to deal with those who are, are not as easy for us to understand. And one of the things I worry about is the failure to study languages at universities, because you don't really know another culture unless you know its language. And of course, English speakers are lazy because we think everyone will speak English and we'll understand them anyway. It doesn't work like that. I mean, you don't really understand China unless you know Mandarin, I think. And, and could read what the Chinese themselves are reading and understand what words mean to them. And I think the same thing with the study of different parts of the world. I mean, I think it's being, I think, unfortunately neglected in a lot of universities. I think it's very important to have deep knowledge of Asia, for example, to understand the relationships among those Asian countries, but also to understand what makes those Asian countries behave and act the way they do. So I would, I would say, you know, Anglosphere all very well and, and it's there and, and it, it's, it's a fact but it should not be the only or the most important thing in, in the foreign policies of our countries. Finally, Margaret, let me ask you about Australia and Canada. Many years ago, you edited a book on Canadian-Australian relations, and I've been married to a Canadian for 20 years, so I feel I could write a book on that topic myself. You were talking earlier about some of the similarities between our two countries and the similarities of in architecture between the University of Sydney and the University of Toronto, but also mindset and so on. And there are certainly a lot of similarities in history and the size of the country. And yet the differences are almost as striking in terms of our worldview and our cast of mind and our strategic culture. You share a border with the most powerful country in the history of the world. We occupy a continent of our own on the other side of the world from our traditional sources of prosperity and security. What do you think about the differences as well as the similarities between Australia and Canada? I think geography matters enormously. And you are an Asian country. I mean, I think it took, or partly Asian country, I, th I think it took Australia a very long time to come to terms with that. Um, but you exist in a world in which Asia is very important. And I think that has had a, a very important um, influence on Australia. And as you say, we live right next door to the United States. And that is something we can't, we can't get away from. You know, as, as the Mex a Mexican president once said, um, poor Mexico, so near the United States and so far from God. And I think Canadians often feel something something of the same. So, yeah, geography matters. We've, we've had, of course, differences in our histories. Um, you've had um, – you, you didn't have a French component in your country. We have a very large French-speaking part of our country, which is – which has helped to shape our politics and our development. But what we did is we talked about parallels and we also talked about differences. Um, you know, your relations with your indigenous peoples are different from our relations with our indigenous peoples. But what is interesting is our courts look to each other. The Marbo decision was used by Canadian courts. And I think the Marbo decision actually used some Canadian decisions. So 
you know, we, we borrow from each other, even though our experiences can be very different. And, and you are different to us. I mean, I think I always feel with Australians is, is you're a lot more self-confident. Um, Canadians are always apologizing. Um, you know, we've always looked on you with, with a certain amount of admiration. Australians say what they mean. We tend to sort of dodge around the bushes. Well, Margaret, I don't think that anyone could accuse you of dodging around the bushes or not saying what you think. And one of the reasons I always look forward to uh, every new book that you publish is because you, you you tell stories, but you have a strong argument in your books, and that's why I enjoy it. So thank you very much for your writing, Margaret McMillan, and thank you in particular for joining me today from Toronto for the Director's Chair. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fulilove. Thanks for listening.